What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And this is episode uh, like 122, 123, 121, something like that of the podcast. I never remember those episode numbers. But uh, yeah, so obviously not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published and you know have a conversation about it and uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast you or even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and uh, give it a read so if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today is Mr. Edward Acorn, and Mr. Acorn is a Pulitzer Prize finalist for commentary, winner of the Yankee Quill Award, and former deputy editorial pages editor of the Providence Journal. He is the author of 59 and 84, Old Hoss Radburn, Barehanded Baseball, and the Greatest Season a Pitcher Ever Had, The Summer of Beer and Whiskey, How Brewers, Barkeeps, Rowdies, Immigrants, and a Wild Pennant Fight Made Baseball America's Game, and Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inaugural of Abraham Lincoln. And lastly, he is the author of The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History, which was published originally back in February by Atlantic Month, Month excuse me, uh, excuse me, Atlantic Monthly Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Acorn, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Tim, it's great to be here. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Um... All right, before we get to the book itself and shop talk, uh, we were just talking a little baseball stuff uh, before we started recording. But uh, um, I assume you know, you're a New England guy, so you're a Red Sox fan? <laughs> yes, yeah? yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. But no, I was just wondering, uh, what do you think of the of all the uh, new rule changes and uh, – the pitch clock and the the big the big bags and the the no shift and all that stuff. What do you what are your thoughts so far? One third mixed, of the way through the season. Mixed bag. I think it's good to speed the game up any way they can. Um, well, not any way they can, but I think it's good <laughs> to speed it up. Uh, I like the 1880s rules where uh, <laughs> you can't uh, replace somebody uh, during the game. You mm-hmm. have to play the whole game unless you're injured. And uh, they they didn't have any commercial breaks, so they just played uh, right right along and played games in an hour and a half to two hours. So yeah, it was a lot easier when there was no TV. <laughs> let's let's go back to those right. days. No, yeah, I think the biggest problem with baseball isn't so much the length of the games, and it's just nothing really happens anymore. You know, it's just all sort of three outcome or at least before the season, uh, you know, it's either home runs, walks, or strikeouts. There's very little, um, you know, the ball is in play in the field uh, very little now, con- you know, compared to 20, 30 years ago. And uh, I think that's the bigger problem. I, I feel like um, I know all the the 
analytics dorks and the the stat head geeks and all that stuff would probably disagree but like i feel like if a team like went back to playing like real baseball you know uh like old school like negro league ball where uh you know stealing bags uh hitting runs you hit to advance the runner uh you know aggressive base running uh you know bunting lots of bunting suicides and all that sort of stuff you know aggressive uh old school baseball and not so much you know worrying about launch angle and trying to hit every ball out of the park um i think like if it was a team like like the like the early 80s cardinals or something like that you know like i feel like that team would do incredibly well (laughs) in this current baseball climate or at least at the very least would be fun to watch you know i mean instead of just a bunch of guys who hit you know like 220 with you know 20 to 30 homers and strike out 150 times a year yeah i i agree with you i think the the analytics have bled a lot of the life out of the game and yeah you know but you know every generation thinks uh you know their the baseball of their boyhood was superior (laughs) this goes back to the back to the 1880s (laughs) when uh you know, in my period, I wrote about when uh, people are saying, oh, boy, this game, they don't they don't they just play for the money. They don't play for the love of the game like in my boyhood. And mm-hmm. So I think we always. Well, yeah, because they're all indentured always, servants back then, basically. So. All, <laughs> right. We always complain about uh, the baseball of our day. No, but but I, I agree with you. I think the analytics have, have drained the life out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's so. just. I know it's just like, well, this is what the computers say and blah, blah, blah. Yep. But, but I feel like, look, like they've been playing baseball for, you know, like over, I mean, almost like 200 years at this point. You know, there's, yep. there's <laughs> you know, at least a century and a half of received wisdom on like how to, like they figured out like how to play baseball a long time ago, like the best way to do it, you know, like the smart yeah. way to do it. And yeah. to think that, like, oh, no, this is what the computer's... Computer says you shouldn't ever uh, steal bases because then you might, you know, uh, run into an out and you don't want to give up outs because it's, there's only 27 outs and all that sort of stuff. Right. And you don't want to do all this. Like, I just think that's that's wrong. Like, like again, like, they've... It's accumulated wisdom over all that time. And, like, again, they, they sort of figured it out a long time ago, like, how to, for the most part, how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I think we should probably just go back to, you know... Um, you know how it was before. You know all the all the nerds started taking over. Seemed a better game to yeah. me. But... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So. Enough uh, baseball griping. And uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean the Red Sox. You know not. Uh, are they in like fourth or fifth place? I think in the AL East. But if you were in the AL Central, you'd be in first place. So it's just you know, you the, the the AL East is just a uh, uh, a murderer's row this year to use another yeah. uh, baseball term, but anyway. All right, uh, enough baseball stuff. So um, to the book itself, The Lincoln Miracle. So um, what what made you want to write the book? What was the, what was the genesis of it, and why do you consider uh, this Republican convention of 1860 to be miraculous? Well, there's there's been eighteen thousand books about Abraham Lincoln, and at least not. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that's the yeah. latest estimate. Um, and none, to my knowledge, just about the convention. And I think this is the most consequential 
uh, political convention in our history. Uh, I think if Lincoln was not the man nominated at that convention, uh, the country would have broken apart. I think only Lincoln, in my opinion, could have held the country together, had the unique skill set to do that. And uh, so I think that aspect is a miracle that he was nominated. And also, it's a miracle because he went in uh, to the convention as a complete underdog. I mean, nobody was picking him to be the nominee. They thought at best he might be a vice presidential nominee because he came from an important swing state, Mm -hmm. Illinois. And uh, the actual, the, the Republican National Committee chose Chicago as a site for the convention, in part because no uh, serious candidate came from Illinois. So, right. so that's uh, how much Lincoln was an underdog going into that thing. Yeah. So how does or how do we get to Chicago, or how does Lincoln get to Chicago in the uh, his political journey there? in for the the convention as you said it's almost uh, it's almost too presumptuous even to call lincoln a long shot or a dark horse you know at the at the bit at the at day one of the convention yeah well he he, uh of course the candidates in those days didn't literally go to the convention themselves they they politely stood back uh pretended to be disinterested while their managers fought like hell at the convention. Um, but Lincoln, Lincoln had uh, suffered repeated defeats. He had not held office for more than a decade. He had lost two runs for the U.S. Senate. Um, he was considered like uh, a, a kind of a loser. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he went in there as a very... You know, he wasn't known around the rest of the country. He was known somewhat for his the Lincoln-Douglas debates two years earlier, where uh, Stephen Douglas, who was the really the star of the Democratic Party, he um, he was expected to mop the floor with Lincoln, and, and Lincoln actually held his own in those debates and even embarrassingly pinned him to the wall several times. And uh, so the Lincoln had a little bit of notoriety from that. He came east and spoke at the Cooper Union in early 1860. So he had a little bit of recognition from that. But seriously, he was not well known around the country. And he came in there as uh, somebody nobody was picking to be the nominee. And that might have been, uh, maybe probably was, uh, helpful to him to be sort of, you know, sort of flying under the radar the way he was. You're right, and he was—he very carefully cultivated that. He refused to say he was a candidate uh, until the last possible minute. He—he he didn't want. You're exactly right. He didn't want to get on the. There was no radar, but he didn't want to get on the radar. He didn't want people to know he was seriously in this thing, and he positioned himself in that convention. He told his people, "Don't offend anyone. Don't offend any of the candidates." Just make a case that if, you know, the, their favorite can't win the nomination, I'm kind of a good compromise candidate uh, you can turn to. And they had several arguments for why he was the best uh, compromise candidate. 
And uh, he very carefully uh, plotted that convention, and it worked like a charm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Republican Party itself uh, is essentially a brand new party. I mean, it's been around for eight years at this point, I think. 1852 was founded. Uh, but it's still, uh, you know, very new in political terms, uh, you know, forming out of the ashes of the of the Whig Party. So who... Who exactly is making up the Republican constituency in 1860? Yeah, it seemed to rise in 1854, but it's it's basically all the people who detest the Democrats. So it's this really motley assortment of all sorts of different interests, and and even uh, two of the states, New Jersey and and Pennsylvania, they didn't even call themselves Republicans, their delegations to the convention. They were just anti-Democrats. And this included people who were uh, anti-Native, I mean, who were sort of nativists, who were Mm -hmm. anti-immigrants. They didn't like the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party instantly welcomed immigrants and tried to get them voting immediately. And this this subset thought that was ruining the country to have uh, people who knew nothing about American and institutions swarming into the country and voting. So there was that segment. There was the the major base of the party was opposition to the spread of slavery, and that was the key element of the party. That was something Lincoln was very strongly. Uh, in favor of support, uh, stopping the spread of slavery. Uh, but there were other uh, other groups, temperance groups, groups that didn't want alcohol to be legal. There were, um, you know, just a whole motley assemblage mm-hmm. of, of different interests. And somebody who, these political professionals who went to Chicago to the convention had to figure out what candidate would best pull all these uh, disparate groups in, into the party and uh, offend the few as possible. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was that was really the big, you know, people ask what's the biggest surprise you confronted researching and writing this book. And, and that was basically it, that the, these guys were not going to Chicago to pick a leader in the in a crisis every that was you know rushing toward the country they just they wanted to pick somebody who would get the most votes for republicans around the country and uh, put the most of them in office and uh they would sort out what happened to the country uh, later so it's very it's very interesting the political currents that were flowing underneath this convention yeah and the germans were the was a very important uh, voting block at the time, and it seems, sort of sounds weird to people, <laughs> like oh, I've got to go out and get the German vote. Uh, yeah. You know, but uh, but there was a lot of um, a lot of German immigrants uh, to the United States, especially after the uh, the aborted uh, revolutions over in Germany in 1848, um, and uh, they're going to make up sort of um, you know, potentially a a swing vote in a lot of yes. northern states. Yeah, I mean, m- most of the immigrants uh, went with the Democrats, um, and the main immigrant groups were Irish and German. 
at, at that time. And the Germans, but still the Germans were a very tiny percentage of the Republican vote, but they were enough to swing um, elections in several northern states. So the, the party professionals were terrified of, of their influence. And they went to the trouble of having their own national convention in Chicago the mm-hmm. same week as the Republican convention. And that was basically to send a signal to the Republicans, you'd better not put somebody too conservative who's associated with the anti-immigration forces in the party. You'd better not put anybody like that, uh, nominate anybody like that for president. And uh, in the book, the, the major candidate, uh, there were t- they were essentially going in, there were two leading candidates, uh, William Seward, who was mm-hmm. the superstar of the Republican Party. He was a very liberal senator from New York, former governor of New York. Uh, and then there was this guy, Edward Bates, who was a judge from Missouri. And Bates had, had flirted with the uh, know-nothing, so-called know-nothing party, which was the anti-immigration party. But he was backed by um, people like Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, who was the most influential editor in the country. And he was backed by the Blair family, which was a very powerful political family. Uh, and he thought he was going to win the nomination. He was appealing to conservatives around the country, swing voters. He, his argument was if, you, if the Republicans nominate me, um, you're going to have somebody who won't threaten the South. The South won't be as afraid of me. Um, they won't secede, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the, the Germans went to Chicago and sent a very clear signal. If you nominate this guy, we're going to bolt from the party. And that would probably defeat Republicans in several states. So that just you know, cut the legs out from under Bates. And that was one of the you know mir- miraculous things that propelled Lincoln into contention uh, against Seward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just backtracking a little bit because I uh, almost forgot to ask you this. Because you use a – there's a – multitude of uh primary sources um in the book people who were um you know contemporaries or or especially people who were who attended the convention itself so how long did it take you to um you know uh find all the sources and how long you know how long did the did it really take the book to, to come together Oh, it, it took years. I mean, you're right. I, I, I love to have primary sources, le- letters, um, newspaper articles, uh, memoirs, things that, that people haven't run into before. And uh, that really breathes life into this. I mean, I, I'm looking at not telling the whole story of Lincoln's career. I'm looking at one week in Chicago right. in 1860. And I just brought, you know, I, I just dived deep into anything people were saying about that week. And it just brings it to life how how much of a long shot Lincoln was, how dramatic this convention was, all this uh, these secret deals, kind of uh, ugly deals they made uh, to get Lincoln nominated. And uh, and so you're right. It's it's a lot of primary sources and it took 
took me years. Um, I did tons of research, and then I committed myself to writing the book itself, the, the physical act of writing the book in a year, and I managed to do that. Um, but it's years of research. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, again, backtracking a little bit, just uh, sort of setting the scene, what is Chicago like as a city in in May 1860? Yeah, one of the, you know, Chicago was delighted to host this convention because it wanted to show the country what an up-and-coming place it was. Only uh, 25 years earlier, it had been just, uh, nothing really, a bunch of cabins near Fort Dearborn along the Chicago River, um, a very swampy, nothing there. Uh, and then suddenly, um, as the country spread west, uh, Chicago became this incredibly important place for the transportation of raw materials and and the pr- production of, of uh, important things people needed. So Chicago just burst into being, and it became a major city by 1860. It only had 112,000 people, but it was the ninth largest city in the country, and it was connected by more rail lines than any city on the globe at that point. So it was really uh, bursting at the seams, and it it was the the speed of its development had created some problems. Um, it was uh, people living there had horrible health problems because of contaminated water and everything. So the, the city was desperately trying to um, raise its downtown. If you can imagine this, they put all the buildings downtown on these giant corkscrews and tried to mm-hmm. lift all the buildings so they could um, put down sewer lines uh, underground. They could raise the level of the ground and put down sewer lines. And so this is Chicago. This is um, nothing would stop this city from getting ahead. And they were in the midst of doing this when the convention took place. But the the city was overrun with rats. The uh, water was very questionable. So you'd had to had to drink liquor if you wanted to be safe. Yeah, that's why everyone drank so much back yeah, then yeah. because you couldn't literally could not drink water without you know well, possibly you, you, getting cholera. It was risky. Yeah, yeah. especially uh, they you know they dumped the sewage out into the Lake Michigan, and if the wind was blowing a certain way, it blew into the source of the drinking water. So it was you know this is the you know people in those days had very. Uh, difficult, strenuous lives to get ahead, and that was that was Chicago through and through. But people were making millions of dollars in this city. It was just this robust, incredible city. And so the the city decided to host this convention, and they the uh, you know there was some talk of trying to have it in existing buildings, but they uh, decided against that. They wa- they wanted to put up a giant auditorium, which they called the Wigwam. Mm-hmm. And they built it in only six weeks. Very crude building. It's just made of wood, essentially. Um, and But it could fit up to 11,000 people. So it was the largest auditorium in the country. And uh, so they were very proud of that. Yeah, no, was, no, uh, uh, no safety permits or uh, inspections no, no, or they, anything like that. So you could, yeah, so you, the, could, you could put something up that quick back then. 
You could. And it, <laughs> in fact, the, the ladies of Chicago came in and decorated it with evergreens and all this bunting and and with the gas lights flaring and all, uh, Bruce Cat and one of my favorite historians said it must have been the greatest fire trap ever built in America. <laughs> and it probably was. Yeah. Yeah. That's maybe that's another uh, another reason it's the Lincoln miracle uh, is that the, <laughs> the, uh, the building itself didn't burn down with everybody it, inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. In about <laughs> 10 years, it did catch fire and it just you know burnt down in minutes really so you can imagine what a disaster it would have been if that was the case yeah it's funny like you know people always talk about oh you know i'd love to go back in time and see this or see that or you know and it's like i don't think you know like you really (laughs) understand like what it means going back like first of all like the stench of just everything would be overpowering uh yeah. because everything was just so filthy and <laughs> gross like you couldn't really eat anything because your stomach couldn't like handle you know <laughs> like that kind of food because you'd never been used to it and uh again like you couldn't drink water like you know your hotel would be you know like a straw mattress you know infested with like you know bed bugs and and lice and stuff like that like yeah there's there's nothing well, very glamorous about uh, some, some of these hotels had, had actually developed pretty nicely. And so they were all right, but they, um, but, but you're right about the water and the food. <laughs> that was not as, as good. Yeah. All right. So, uh, before the Democrats, or excuse me, before the Republicans are going to meet in Chicago, there have been some, uh, events with some very big uh, implications for the race going forward for president. And the first one is the basically the self-immolation of the Democratic Party yes. in Charleston, uh, where uh, basically over slavery and um, uh, they really couldn't come to an agreement on who they wanted to pick as a nominee. All the Southern delegates walk out and they basically have to leave Charleston without... Uh, uh, without really having done their business, and they will con- um, they will meet again about a month after the Republicans do, but basically at this point the party is split into a northern and a southern wing, and each is going to run its own candidate for president. Stephen Douglas will be the Lincoln's old rival, will be the nominee of the Northern Democrats, and then the Southern Democrats will go with the uh, sitting vice president of the time, John C. Breckenridge of Kentucky, and then the other uh, big development is because this is essentially going to be a four-way race for the yep. White House uh, is yep. the Constitutional Union Party, uh, which is sort of a, a collection of old Whigs and uh, various and sundries. Uh, they're going to have their own convention in Baltimore a week before the Republicans, and they're going to be they're essentially for. Um, we're not going to talk about slavery period. We're just, you know, the constitution as it is, that's our party. That's why we're the constitutional union party. And they're going to nominate, uh, for president, uh, John bell, who's a, he's not a sitting Senator. He's a former Senator from Tennessee. And right. the important part of that is the, the democratic union party and bell, uh, have, uh, some potential to, to be spoilers for the Republicans in the race. Right, exactly. This this four, you know, there were will be four candidates vying for this thing, but the Republicans felt pretty good going into their convention with, 
you know, the Democrats all split up. And then the, uh, the big fight over the border states was was John Bell and the Constitutional Union Party. So they, the, the Republicans felt they had a pretty good run at the North if uh, if they nominated the right candidate. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And then at the convention itself, I know um, uh, really the the um, the tradition was, or the uh, the convention was back then, that uh, basically you didn't, if you were running. Or yep. you know, you didn't show up at the convention, so Lincoln's not going to be there. Lincoln's, um, it's a Lincoln book, but Lincoln is sort of, <laughs> kind of, you know, in the background, just you know, sort of pacing the floors uh, while the action's going on. But uh, he's going to have a, a crew of guys that are going to be basically his agents um, there in Chicago. Uh, starting off, the most important one uh, is his friend Judge David Davis, and he's sort of going to be the MVP of the Lincoln team at the convention. <laughs> and then there are other guys like Leonard Sweat and uh, the uh, physically imposing Ward Hill Lehman, who eventually is going to be Lincoln's bodyguard. Um, but uh, talk a little about like what the role, uh, what role are these, uh, these apparatchiks they, they sort of yeah. have at a convention? Because uh, the other thing too, for people um, when we're talking about like it, these conventions weren't like or aren't like they are now where everything is scripted down to the, the millisecond. Everything's already, you know, like we know the um, nominee in advance and, you know, it's just basically a big TV show or a big, you know, a two or three day long uh, political commercial. Uh, the conventions back then, everything was sort of up in the air. So what is the role of these guys like Davis and Sweat and Lehman? Uh what are they there to do and how do they do it? Yeah. You know, you mentioned it's not like the modern system, the the modern system, William Seward, I think would have won the nomination easily. Mm -hmm. He had money at organization. He was all, you know, he was the most popular candidate in the Republican party. So he would have done very well in the new system, but in the convention system, it was these political professionals gathering from around the country and they were, determined to choose the candidate who would get them the most jobs, patronage, power, etc. David Davis was a 300-pound judge who knew Lincoln uh, very well because he was the judge of the 8th District Court, um, which was a sort of a traveling court in Illinois. And he traveled with Lincoln six months out of the year going from courthouse to courthouse to dispense justice. Lincoln was a lawyer who would just pick up clients along the along the way, but they got to know each other very well. And, and Davis really respected Lincoln's uh, character and his, his courage and his intelligence. And he came to Chicago as one of uh, Lincoln's four chosen delegates to to uh, lead the effort, he got there to Chicago and discovered the campaign was so disorganized, nobody had even booked a room at the hotel for their headquarters. So Davis immediately set to work, uh, managed to bribe a family to move out of the hotel, and he took over their rooms and he set up shop. And he, without being appointed by anyone, by Lincoln or anyone else, he, he assumed the role as 
of manager of the campaign effort, and he didn't sleep the rest of the week, you know, an hour or two here and there, but that was about it. And he uh, immediately set to work sending uh, Lincoln supporters out out to uh, different delegations. You know, one of the things um, the Illinois people had going for them is they were all pretty much all from somewhere else. You know, they mm-hmm. had come from states back east and moved out to the Midwest. This was a very new uh, pioneering state, really. Uh, so Davis sent all his friends, Lincoln friends, to the states essentially that they came from, and they they courted these different delegations. Uh, and they made the case that uh, this guy has a great story to tell. He was born in a log cabin. He's, he can relate to the to the average uh, voter very well. Um, and he, he was somebody unlike Seward, who was, Seward was considered very famous, very controversial, because he had been so outspoken against slavery, and he had been a, a very strong supporter of immigrants. Uh, he hated this sort of nativist sentiment uh, sweeping over the country. And Lincoln shared those views, but he was not as famous as Seward, so he wasn't as scary to swing swing voters. So mm. these politicians <laughs> had to factor in that. And uh, you know, Davis made the case: Link, Lincoln is the the guy who's going to get you the most votes in November. And uh, they they managed to uh, work very hard at doing that. Um, but should I tell you about the course of the convention? How uh, uh, do I get ahead of this? I'll oh yeah, yeah, you can yeah go go for it, and then you know if I think of something, I'll yeah I'll interrupt you. <laughs> well, you know, despite all this, you know, Seward was you know very controversial, but despite all that, nobody seemed to emerge as a viable alternative to him. Two days into the convention. And so on Thursday, the convention opened on a Wednesday. On Thursday evening, um, nobody has, had emerged as somebody who could challenge Seward. Seward had won a whole series of test votes at the convention. So making it clear, he was the strongest candidate. And they were all ready to vote for president uh, on Thursday evening. Um, and Seward would have been nominated, I think. But... Uh, Suddenly, the rostrum announced they didn't have tally sheets ready yet. <laughs> it would be about five minutes. And uh, the delegates decided they were hungry and tired, and so they uh, adjourned for the night uh, to come back the next morning. Yeah, on such things, <laughs> hang the things <laughs> in mission, right? Isn't that tally incredible? Yeah. yeah, the tally sheets. For want of tally sheets, um, Seward was not nominated for president. And the the Lincoln men went to work that night, uh, cutting <laughs> cutting various deals and doing some rather uh, underhanded things to uh, propel Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, so all the uh, Seward, Bates, and then I guess Chase, uh, Sam and Chase of yeah. Ohio, were like the three front runners. But um, as you sort of mentioned, all of the front runners had sort of pissed off one section or another of the party. You know, like there was one section of the party that had a problem with, you know, one of the three. So, <laughs> and then, um, so, uh, and their necks are all sort of on the chopping block because, uh, 
you know, they're more exposed. And uh, so the Lincoln people know basically that, look, we got to just basically we got to make sure Seward doesn't get the nomination on the first ballot. And if that happens, then it's totally up in the air and anything goes. And uh, as you said, you may start uh, uh, wheeling and dealing and sort of uh, you know, making this possible. There's uh, they, they hand out like a ton of counterfeit tickets <laughs> yes. to uh, fill the uh, to fill the wigwam with Lincoln Lincoln supporters uh, and sort of take the seats of the uh, uh, <laughs> of the Lincoln supporters. I mean, it's it's uh, it's funny all the chicanery that that uh, takes place, you know, over yeah, that night. It's, it's very funny. I mean, the Seward's um, manager, who was this guy named Thurlow Weed, who mm-hmm. was a very influential editor in Albany, New York, which was the state capital, and New York was the most powerful and populous state in the country at the time. So they he had a ton of control in the party, and he. He had raised all this money by dubious means, but he, he, he used it to send thousands of Seward supporters out to Chicago. And he understood herd mentality and uh, that if people saw how strong uh, the support for Seward was, they would uh, sort of be swept up in the moment and uh, nominate him. So he thought he had this thing all solved. But the Lincoln people on Thursday night after the tally sheets didn't arrive and they went to work, they realized they needed somebody to uh, they needed to counter uh, Seward's strength in the hall. So somebody came up with this idea of printing counterfeit tickets <laughs> to, to the convention. And then they forged the names of Republican officials, uh, which is all I would suggest is illegal. But they did it. Um, and then uh, so the Seward men were out. The Seward men had been having parades every morning um, on the way to the convention hall, and they did this Friday morning. It was the, this big, splashy parade showing Seward as the guy, and, and they marched to the convention hall, and they discover all their seats <laughs> had been taken by the Lincoln men, So even though they had the legitimate tickets. So anyways, this, was, this is part of what goes into selecting our, one of our greatest presidents, if not the greatest. Yeah. And of course, Lincoln famously sort of sends word that like, yes, you know, in no way, shape or form are you to make a deal in my name in right to, yeah, you know, to garner support, but as smart and as crafty, uh, a political mind as Lincoln is, is there sort of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink behind that? There, there may be, but there may be. And, and, you know, you would think that. But, you know, on the other hand, Lincoln had to be worried about people making deals uh, who he didn't necessarily trust that much. He knew if he was the nominee, he would have to very carefully choose mm-hmm. who, who served in his cabinet in order to bring this really truculent party behind him, he had to, he had to very, Lincoln understood the importance of patronage. So he, he was concerned about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, he sent a message up, make no deals in my name. And Lincoln's men got this message and they're, they're, they're sort of cursing under their breath at Lincoln saying, you know, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> and and uh, Davis just said, Lincoln ain't here. 
Yeah, I mean, but they kind of do. They, I mean, they do make a deal with um, Simon Cameron, who yes is basically uh, uh, he's a senator from Pennsylvania. He's basically the a machine pole. Yes, um, and uh, they get Cameron to switch, uh, or Cameron agrees to switch Pennsylvania's delegation to Lincoln on the second ballot, uh, and Pennsylvania's, a, a, back then as it is today, a, a very important, uh, uh, I think it might have been the uh, second largest state uh, after New York at the time in terms of population. So he gets right. the Pennsylvania delegation to to switch to Lincoln, and you know they make a deal with him, and eventually he's going to be Lincoln's uh, <laughs> war, yeah. war secretary for a hot second before he gets... Uh, booted out into St. Petersburg for, uh, yeah, they, Cameron was regarded as a really a crooked politician and they <laughs> promised him the treasury department, which is <laughs> like really terrible when you think of it. Cause he could do all sorts of corruption from there. And, uh, you know, there's some discussion about it, but they said, Oh, the treasure, the presidency is worth the treasury department. So we won't worry about it. But anyway, so Lincoln was stuck with Cameron, who he, he said to somebody that his very name stinks in the nostrils of Americans. And I have to <laughs> appoint this guy now to the cabinet. And Lincoln, as you mentioned, he eventually made him war, war secretary. And, uh, from there, it was a big disaster. So, uh, yeah, especially knowing what's, you know, that there's a civil war coming in, you know, yeah. <laughs> less than a year. Uh, yeah, that's the problem. But, so, you know, as, as you mentioned, that was a Lincoln said, I, uh, before the convention, I want that big foot of Pennsylvania to come down for me. And, and it did, it did. That's what propelled Lincoln, uh, on the third ballot to the nomination. Um, and it was, uh, you know, when these people made these deals, when Davis made these deals, he had no idea if, uh, these guys were going to live up to it. So it yeah, was very true. dramatic on the floor of the, the convention that Friday morning. Yeah. Oh, um, if you could too, uh, before we move along a little bit, uh, you could talk a little bit about the, uh, the platform, the Republican platform, which, uh, I mean, they still, again, they still do platforms at the conventions, the the two parties. But again, no one really, it it's it doesn't really matter now. The plat, no one really right. cares about the platform. But back in in the 19th century, uh, the the party platform itself was a, a very big deal in those times, and you know, it actually meant something. So, uh, talk a little bit about how or you know what went into crafting the Republican platform. Well, it was, as you mentioned, it was very important back then. They, the platform would go out to newspapers all around the country, and that would be the program the party was essentially running on. But it was done in a rather <laughs> haphazard manner, I think. It's, they, they, they created a committee to, to come back with a platform, and the committee, committee was too big, so, so, just about uh, a handful of the committee went off on their own and came up with the uh, the platform, and it, it tried to uh, you know tried to like any political platform, it tried to appease all the people in the party, 
So it, it made a nod towards having tariffs, which uh, terrified the South, but it was very popular in the North to, to protect uh, American industries that were developing. Um, it was against the spread of slavery. Um, that was very obvious. And there was a big fight over whether it would include language from the Declaration of Independence including the, the statement, all men are created equal, which was considered a radical theory in 1860 still, <laughs> uh, even though it was uh, everyone revered the founders. Um, and it was feared that that would uh, be taken by voters as saying that blacks and whites are equals, which would not play well with the white voters, of, even in the Republican Party. So there was a, I write about this in the book. There was a massive fight over, including the language of the Declaration of Independence in the platform. And finally, the Republicans dared to do that. So they were making a statement that uh, all races have certain rights that, that no government can take away. And, and that, that was a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, like we said, uh, the the Cameron switcheroo with the Pennsylvania delegation. And then after that, uh, after that switch, it's, it's essentially, it's a done deal, uh, yeah. in favor of Lincoln. So what is the reaction in Chicago when Lincoln gets nominated in the hall in the city? Uh, and then how, uh, how does the nation react to, to the news of, Abraham Lincoln, uh, the rail splitter, this sort of relatively unknown, uh, sort of homely looking guy from yeah. Illinois as the Republican nominee. How, what's, what's the reaction like? Well, Chicago, of course, goes crazy because one of their own has made it. And so there's mad celebrations that night in Chicago <laughs> with a lot of uh, torchlight parades and all that stuff. Yeah, it's like if the polls um, won the, you know. Yeah, like the Bulls won the finals or something. But, you know, the people who supported Seward were absolutely livid. And they they thought, this is outrageous. How can this convention uh, choose this uneducated rail splitter over um, somebody who had the level of experience and education of, of Seward? He was a former governor. He was a senator. He had traveled to Europe and met with the leaders of Europe. He was really <laughs> bred for the presidency. And here they picked this rail splitter who would just run a two man law office to be president of the United <laughs> States. So they were, the party was very badly split at that point. They were, um, the Seward forces were just furious. They thought the convention was a farce and they were particularly angry with Horace Greeley who is, uh, was a very famous person at the time. He's, I suppose he's not as not well known now, but he was, he's the guy who said, go West young man. That's probably the most famous thing he did. Um, and he was the editor of the New York Tribune and very, he had gone in and t talked to all the delegates saying, look, Seward's, Seward's too controversial. He can't win. You got to choose another candidate. And he was pushing for Bates. Um, so the Seward people were just furious at him, and they thought it was it was all political because uh, Weed and Thurlow Weed and Seward had prevented Greeley from <laughs> from becoming Lieutenant Governor of New York. Yeah, these, there's 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 a lot of bad blood 
Yeah, yeah. These editors back in the day weren't content to be editors. They wanted to be politicians directly. So uh, they prevented him from being lieutenant governor. In fact, gave the job to the New York Times editor, his his <laughs> competitor. Yeah, his competitor. Yeah. So uh, they were just furious at this guy, and so the party was very divided at that at that point. And many people around the country thought. Well, you know, what have they done? Um, you know, are we really going to turn the country over to this uneducated guy who's best known for splitting rails in, in his youth? Uh, and it was uh, dicey for a while. Yeah. And how does Lincoln, uh, well, this is sort of famous, the whole team of rivals things, essentially his, his attempt to... Um, mend the breach uh the uh divisions in the party is he'll basically all the front runners <laughs> we talked about bates seward chase um right. uh who you will all be he'll name all of those uh men to his cabinet including uh i think one of the blairs as well yes uh, one of the blairs yeah so uh so what is how does lincoln go about uh, sort of extending an olive branch and, and how does the party sort of coalesce again in time for the, uh, in time for the general election? Lincoln very qu- quickly reaches out to these people and uh, tries to mend fences. He has a very difficult time winning over Seward. I don't think he even won him over when his administration began and he made Seward secretary of state. Seward continued to believe Lincoln was his inferior, and in fact, Seward tried to sort of take over as the de facto leader of the uh, administration um, early in 1861, mm. which is a very interesting story. But Lincoln did reach out, and he he very carefully constructed his cabinet to represent all the different power bases of the Republican Party. Somehow he had confidence in himself that he could um, be stronger than all these people, uh, which is a remarkable thing when you think of his record of failure and his limited executive experience. Uh, one of the first people he met with was Thurlow Weed, who was Seward's great manager. And Weed uh, was as crushed as anybody, but he went to Springfield and met with Lincoln, and he he instantly discovered this man has tremendous depth. He's not just some rail splitter or just some lawyer. He, um, he spent five hours talking about politics and he said, he, this man really understands human nature. He understands politics. He, we're, we're going to be in good shape with him. So Thurlow weed was won over and the New York swung around to support, uh, support Lincoln. Yeah. As I said, Seward was very reticent to, you know, he kind of snubbed Lincoln during the campaign, and I write about that in the book. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, early 1861, he finally he finally um, wrote to his wife, Lincoln is the best of us. He, mm-hmm. he really is a brilliant executive. And I think that's, you know, I think, one of the things I love about Seward and Lincoln is both of these men rose above these insults and these ego problems and 
they became the closest of friends during the Civil War, and, and Seward became an indispensable mm -hmm. advisor to him, uh, very important in winning the Civil War. Yeah, it's almost uh, amazing, too, the same thing with uh, Stephen Douglas, because uh, Douglas and Lincoln are longtime rivals, and Douglas doesn't have very much longer to live um, at the time. He's uh, sort of sick. No one knows he's in, is, in, is in as bad shape as he is. But, I mean, they were bitter rivals, but then once the war uh, breaks out or the, the state starts succeeding, uh, the southern state starts seceding, uh, you know, Douglas goes to Lincoln and, uh, you know, very magnanimously and just is like, whatever you need from well, me, yeah. I do, I will do. And then Douglas actually uh, will hold Lincoln's hat at uh, <laughs> while Lincoln's speaking at the first inaugural. He said, you know, right. give me your yeah. hat, I'll hold it for you. Um, yeah. so it's, uh, <laughs> it's amazing that, you know, as, as, uh, uh, as bloodthirsty a game, uh, as politics can be, uh, that, or maybe because it is so bloodthirsty, maybe that's part of the reason why it sort of, uh, bonds <laughs> the rivals yeah. like that together, you know? Well, that was, you know, that, talk about a great symbol, um. As you mentioned, Lincoln had nowhere to put his top hat, so so he so D Douglas took it over, waved over, and he put he held uh, Lincoln's hat. Uh, what a what a what a symbol of um, the country trying to come together at that point. And D uh, Douglas especially uh, fell behind Lincoln after the firing on Fort Sumter, which mm -hmm. he thought was absolutely outrageous of the South to shoot on a on a United States the United States flag like that and he's you know Lincoln mentioned he was going to call up 75,000 volunteers uh, to try to enforce the laws and Douglas said you should do twice as many yeah. uh, so Douglas was very strongly in his camp until he died very soon after that I think in June um, Right. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think what would have happened if, you know, some because Douglas, I mean, he doesn't, he only wins, I think he wins one state, uh, in the electoral college, but he's uh, second to Lincoln in the popular vote, and yeah, what would have happened if, you know, say Douglas had won the election, and, right, and then, uh, well, maybe the South South wouldn't have seceded. They very well may have at that point. Well, they but, might have, yeah. Yeah, and but who, then who what happens when, <laughs> you know, if if Douglas dies, um, you know, in early 1861, after the secession of half of the, of right. the country, and then who's his uh, oh, his vice president is, nominee is uh, Herschel Johnson from Georgia, right? The, <laughs> so what now? Like, what, you're right. <laughs> Like it's just incredible, you know. I've never sussed out that uh, thought. What what if Douglas had won and died? Yeah, yeah. It's, but that's one of the great ifs, you know, that populate history. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what if Lincoln had not won the nomination? That's the mm -hmm. the biggest one. And I, I I don't think Seward would have had the strengths Lincoln had in in pursuing that war. Lincoln had been uh, had incredible powers of endurance. He had suffered de defeat after defeat, something that Seward had not done. Um, 
he had a sort of a yeah, mindset. And, and, yeah, and that's going to help him during the war. Yes. the union is going to... Yeah, know, the mindset of rising above terrible disappointments. Um, he had a greater flair for language than Seward, even though Seward was really at the uh, top notch in that regard. But Lincoln was, uh, I think he's the greatest prose writer in, a, in American literature up there with or ahead of Twain. You know, he's, he's in a tremendous uh, communicator. Absolutely. Uh, and it just, he had this kind of streak of pragmatism that Seward lacked. And he was able to keep the country together by uh, very practically pursuing things, even though he, he would get in trouble for, for instance, holding off on emancipation. He was being excoriated by excoriated by his party over that and Horace Greeley he had to hold yes Horace Greeley he had to hold off till the point when the public could just barely swallow it um and Lincoln was brilliant at that at his understanding of political timing Mm -hmm. so I think for all those reasons this country would have been in deep trouble if Lincoln wasn't the guy nominated and Obviously, I don't think you think Lincoln would have been nominated if the convention were not in Chicago in 1860. Yeah, all, you're right. All this stuff plays into it. You know, the the location of the convention, the, the tally sheets, the uh, German-Americans, it all plays into it, fits into it, slots into place perfectly to advance Lincoln. And It, it does it, seem very providential <laughs> it does and and some of the people you know I, I write in the book about one of these reporters who was covering the convention and he said you know none of these delegates had no idea really who they were nominating yeah uh only the husk of, of lincoln they they knew the guy who told jokes and funny stories on the campaign trail and sl- split w- logs and had you know had a pretty good uh ability to debate and so forth but they didn't know you know really what lincoln was his real greatness and he said you know you have to look at the hand of providence in this thing because even the delegates voting on him didn't know what he was no and they probably didn't expect what was to come was going to come i mean you know in this uh this massive, uh, massively bloody uh, civil war that you right. know, even if people expected there was going to be some sort of war, uh, clearly they didn't expect the, uh, the the carnage of it. And I'm certain if you like uh, one of your, I think at the very last page of the book, maybe in the uh, afterward or the, the someone says, if you know, if you would have said to someone in 1860 that slavery would be <laughs> within one right. presidential administration would be no more everyone would looked at you uh you know like you you had three heads you know right <laughs> that's sort of thing. right exactly yeah so, yeah oh, okay well um again i said i'd only keep you about an hour we're almost there so uh last question i have for you basically when i ask everybody the sort of the exit question that uh for everybody that comes on the podcast and that's basically you know what what would you like the audience to get out of this book or uh what's the one thing you'd want a reader to taking to take from the book having read it 
Well, I would want the reader to feel like he or she is there right at the convention because that's what I really try to do. I just try mm-hmm. to put you there and you know, the smells, the sounds, the everything about it and to have fun. I mean, this is a wild a wild series of events and it just builds up to this incredible climax. So I I think it's a great fun story. So I hope I hope people have fun with it, but also maybe draw a lesson from it that, um, you know, miracles can take place, especially (laughs) in this incredible country, and that, uh, you know, you don't lose hope. Uh, This country's been through some terrible things, and sometimes uh, it it has uh, an ability to rise above dark times uh, through these miraculous figures that rise up. So uh, I hope they, I hope a reader will draw that from it. All right. Great. Uh, well, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else uh, besides the book you want to plug any like social media or website or any appearances or anything else you're working on? Something like that. Yeah. Um, my, my website is edacorn.com. E-D-A-C-H-O-R-N.com, and people can uh, reach reach me through that. Um, you can send me a message, and I'd love to hear from you. All right, great. Okay, well, again, uh, the book is The Lincoln Miracle Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Uh, as you said, you know, you wanted people to feel like um, they're there, and <clears throat> you definitely achieved that. It's a very, very, uh, very, very fun read. Uh, you know, sort of uh, builds up uh, pace, uh, you know, through the, through the narrative that's uh, sort of uh, very thrilling. And, you know, as you regular listeners know on there, we're, you know, big fans of Lincoln books on the podcast. We've done a, a, a ton of them, but it's been a while. Actually, it's probably been about uh, at least like 20 or 30 podcasts or so since we've had, uh, had a chance to do a, a Lincoln book. Um, so I'm very happy to have had the chance to do that again but yeah it's a fantastic fantastic book for all you history fans lincoln fans out there uh, american history fans um uh very fantastic totally uh 100 worth 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 the money worth the read so make sure you guys go out there and get it again the lincoln miracle inside the republican convention that changed history and the author mr ed acorn so uh ed Thank you uh, once again for coming on the podcast and discussing the book. I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for, you know, taking the years uh, of your life to <laughs> to researching <laughs> and writing and uh, getting the book out there for us so that we all could, uh, you know, read it and enjoy it. And uh, so thank you very much, very, very much. Thank you, Tim. It's been fun. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, uh, please consider leaving us a excuse me, leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or anything uh, about the podcast or you know anything else, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the website. You can also reach out to us there if you have any questions, comments, or have any suggestions for books or anything like that. Um, our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books, so make sure you check that out. 
And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. We're having a party Dancing to the music Played by the DJ On the radio The Cokes are in the icebox Popcorn's on the table Me and my baby We're out here on the floor So Mr. Mr. DJ Keep those records playing Cause I'm having such a good time Dancing with my baby Everybody's swinging Dolly's doing that twist now If you take request I Got a few for you Play that song called Soul Twist Play that one called I Know Don't forget him Potatoes. No other songs will do. Let me tell you, Mr. Mr. DJ, keep those records playing, cause I'm having such a good time dancing with my baby. Hey.